Welcome to Pop Culture Happy Hour, NPR's roundtable podcast about what we're watching, reading, and listening to. I'm Stephen Thompson. I'm a writer and editor with NPR Music. This week we'll discuss the new Western remake, The Magnificent Seven, and the new TV comedy, Fleabag. And as always, we'll close the show with what's making us happy this week, so stick around. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour. Check out the NPR One app for your phone. You can listen to news and stories from your local station and find new shows and stories to liven up your commute. Great, thoughtfully curated podcasts and stories are always ready when you are on NPR One. Find it in your app store, N-P-R-O-N-E. We've got movies and TV on the docket for today, but before we get started here in historic Studio 44, let's go around the table. Glenn Weldon, what do you do at NPR? I write about books and comics and other stuff for the NPR website. Tanya Ballard, what do you do at NPR? I'm an editor for our website, and then I walk around and bother people. Excellent. <laughs> Chris Klimek, what do you do for NPR? I write about movies and sometimes other things for the website, and I'm an editor at Smithsonian Air and Space. Excellent. Well, I'm glad to uh, to have you all here for this one last Linda Holmes-less episode before she returns from her many travels. So we do not get, in this country, a lot of mainstream, big-budget westerns in 2016. But last week, we got a large-scale remake of 1960s The Magnificent Seven, which was itself a remake of 1954's Seven Samurai. The new film, directed by Antoine Fuqua, stars Denzel Washington, Chris Pratt, Ethan Hawke, Vincent D'Onofrio, and many others. And like many Westerns, it is a revenge thriller, this time about a small town under the boot heel of a villainous mining baron named Bartholomew Bogue, played with almost literal mustache twirling by Peter Sarsgaard. Glenn, I'm going to start with you. Uh How did this... Magnificent Seven work for you? Uh, it was okay. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it does what it does very dutifully, and I am less than interested in what it does, which is fascinating to me given how closely the uh, superhero genre maps sure. itself right over the Western genre. They are essentially the same. But as Chris pointed out in his review on the on the website, this is not an anti-Western or a neo-Western or a revisionist Western sure. at all. This is straight down the middle. You're lacking even the gleeful decadence that Tarantino brings to Westerns mm-hmm. in uh, Hateful Eight and in Django Unchained. They're bloody and gory, and, and what he wants to do is make the evil guy so evil that you feel this catharsis. He makes the violence so extreme so that at the end of it you feel this catharsis. He's ju- it's just button pushing. Here, it's toned back. There's a huge body count, but it's a bloodless body count. It feels very old-fashioned in that way, where somebody just kind of grabs their chest and falls to the ground, and there's no struggling, there's no suffering, right. and there's very little blood. And that feels like it's playing into the old myths of the Old West, which, you know, I've read a lot of Patricia Limerick in my time. She's a, <laughs> she's a historian who kind of tries to recast the, the mythic nature of the Old West into something a little bit more grounded, realistic, about bloody conquest and cruel economic exploitation. So that myth doesn't land on me the way it always has. But, uh, you know, I thought it was fine. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'm going to go to Tanya. What did you think? I'm not necessarily a fan of Westerns, but, you know, this had Denzel and some sure other nice, you know, eye candy people. So why not go? <laughs> you know, it was a Western. You know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, like the same sort of themes, you know, they, we're going to fight and, you know, we'll win. The things that were interesting to me, it was a rainbow coalition of Magnificent <laughs> Seven. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, honestly, I have paid no attention to this film or any of its casting or anything prior to going and sitting in this theater beyond vaguely remembering that Denzel was in this movie. Sure. So I didn't know who the the six 
other people were. <laughs> Denzel so, plus six. Right. So then they started showing up. And I remember thinking, there you go, a Native American. Check. Mm-hmm. I also thought what was interesting, this sort of play on the magical Negro slash white savior thing, because you had this black guy saving these white people helping them save their land and that seemed to be sort of a twist on some of those Mm. tropes Mm -hmm. you know what glenn said it it was fine (laughs) it was fine yeah i mean you made an interesting point sort of about about what you called the magical negro there is clearly some effort in this movie to upend certain racial stereotypes and also the way people of color have often been depicted and and how and how their roles have played out in, in other movies i think i think that is clearly an attempt to do some some interesting work and also, Peter Sarsgaard, he wasn't very villainous to me. Hmm. And oh, also, really? <laughs> I thought mean, he was the most what mustache. Uh, he had, comes well, in and I mean, have down to tie a maiden to a track. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. They walk into the church and are spitting tobacco on the floor, and then they set it on fire. Gentle, gentlemen <laughs> to evil. I, I, mean, I, I guess he was. I guess what I'm saying is he was too on the. I wanted to see a little bit more menace. He he was a superhero villain. He was. Pl- I mean, I think he he was the bad guy in Green Lantern, right? Yeah, he was Sinestro. Yeah. He was one of my problems with the movie, actually. I, I expected this to be something more of an of an anti-Western or revisionist Western in, in the vein of, of Unforgiven or The Hateful Eight. The original, in, in the prior iterations of the story, in Seven Simon and, and in The Magnificent Seven, it is not a revenge story. And that's what's interesting to me about it, is these warriors, for their own reasons, individually are accepting the burden of protecting these other people. And it's sort of implied that they're doing it as penance for their prior sins. Right. And that is the most interesting thing to me about it. And when you you put in this this revenge motive, it's kind of like the thing that Glenn has written about in his book about what we both see as the major flaw with the Tim Burton Batman movie. When you make the Joker the one who killed Bruce Wayne's parents, it's no longer a crusade. It's just revenge and you right. know your quest is completed at the end of the movie when that guy is dead. So I, I didn't like that this more philosophical and, and sort of enigmatic story of these bad guys who choose this time to try to do good right. becomes more of a revenge thing. You know? Well, they also didn't give you enough meat to get vested in any of these people. They just You just see Denzel go into the saloon and shoot some people, and you see Chris Pratt, who is playing his Guardians of the Galaxy character right, for yeah. the first two-thirds of the movie. There wasn't enough of anything for me personally to get. The closest person I I wanted to know more about was Goodnight, who was played by Ethan Hawke. Yeah, the first two films that you were talking about here, The Seven Samurai and The Original Magnificent Seven, both ended with a sort of somber grace note where the main characters realized that they actually lost. In both Seven Samurai and in uh, The Magnificent Seven, that's, a, that's an actual line of dialogue. Our kind it's, always lose. Our kind always lose. Here, that is replaced by a button, a piece of voiceover, that is the cheesiest yeah. ball of cheese. <laughs> it's yeah. bad. That is more sort of soaring and hopeful, and it's like, wow, you missed the boat. There is sort of a classic shot of people on horseback riding into the distance, and then the sky takes on this magenta sort of screensaver tint as the, <laughs> the the voiceover comes in just so someone in the movie will say the word magnificent. That's it. It's really bad. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's rough. I mean, my thought on this film, and I had somewhat of the same reaction where it's like this felt like a fairly straight ahead Western. I remember as a kid being a huge, huge fan of the 1960, the kind of Yul mm. Brenner movie. I, 
became a big fan of Horst Buchholz because, of his, because yeah. of his performance in the 1960 version. Yeah, it felt much more straight ahead. I think the decision to take the nuance out of the villain's motivation yeah. was a key mistake, I think, in this film. They, you have like complicated heroes, but it's really a fairly uncomplicated good versus evil story where you yeah. have a villain who is just straight ahead evil. And the motivations of the villain in the 1960 version, you ultimately find out things about his motivations that do make him a little bit more interesting and sympathetic yeah. rather than just like, we have to shoot all of these people for this reason. The the action sequences, and there are a lot of big, long, drawn out fight sequences in which this town is set upon by no good nicks. Everybody's sort of being mowed down and and what Glenn referred to in that kind of bloodless yeah. PG-13 way, mm-hmm. where like people are getting hit in the chest with arrows. You almost expect them to disappear like right. in a puff of smoke the way they would <laughs> in a video game. Yeah. I did not see Seven Samurai, but I did see the, mm-hmm. the original Magnificent Seven. And I remember being very affected by characters dying yeah. in that movie. In this movie, I feel like there's a lot less of that and that that made it a little bit of a disappointment for me. Well, th- this movie does have a much higher body count than any prior version of this story. And I mean, yeah, there, there isn't a lot of blood and gore, but I, I mean, I certainly felt the weight of the violence and I felt it in a like sort of a wearying, oppressive way right. watching this version in, in a way that I don't with the others. This version, Peter Sarsgaard, after after his first wave of guys get uh, get killed, he rolls out a Gatling gun. You know, this, right. this horrific and that was, Civil you War You saw that coming invention. as soon he telegraphed yeah, it when he said, and, and, bring in the wagon. I was like, oh, here's the yeah, Gatling gun. Yeah, me too. <laughs> but in a weird way, like, I was going back and forth. Like, I mean, I generally like Antoine Fuqua's movies, but I don't think of him as a, as a thoughtful filmmaker mm-hmm. most of the time. I think he's more of a visual stylist. You, you didn't think the Equalizer was thoughtful? <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> that movie does young. have, I, I actually, uh, when I wrote about that movie, it, like, my my favorite part of that movie is the totally like pacifistic first third where Denzel is just going through his day reading the classics drinking his tea in the <laughs> That's diner the movie you he's wanted. meticulous about keeping his sneakers clean like that was kind of an interesting character study like I mm-hmm. when you know the gears kick in it's like okay now we have to, to kill some people I was less less interested but um with this one, I almost wondered whether you know Fuqua was 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 trying to to say something by by bringing out this horrific weapon that instantly defeats all of the expertise, all of the all of the talent, all of the you know the grace and skill. So it is in response to the sharpshooting by Billy Rocks in Goodnight, the Ethan Hawke and and Byun Hyung Lee, South Korean star. They're two characters, you know, establishing that they're the the best shots in the battle. And the response is to bring out this horrific, destructive weapon that just mows down the town. All of this finesse, all of this concern, all of the the warrior's craft of, of, Mm -hmm. you know, not being needlessly destructive is instantly defeated by this horrific machine. And I like I couldn't decide whether I thought that that was an actual idea (laughs) that uh, this film wanted to introduce or whether it was just we need to make it bigger. I do think it can be both. Like it Mm -hmm. can be the Gatlin gun can be two things. It Mm -hmm. definitely felt when I thought about it later, like this, the introduction of this weapon is clearly a dividing line in the way these stories are told and the way these battles are fought, that all of a sudden you are losing the age of finesse in battle and you are losing the age in which seven plucky misfits 
can come together and and save a town from a hundreds strong band of marauders. Right. That it is this. Uh, sorry to keep saying equalizer, but, you know, but, but it is. It makes it harder for underdogs to win. It's kind of ushering out that era. Right. Yeah. Well, this film was made in 2016 after this idea of we have to help the town defend itself uh, has been spoofed in the Three Amigos mm-hmm. and in uh, Blazing Saddles. So uh, yeah, we have to make it bigger. But the fact that it's in 2016 means we can get this casting, which uh, which at least updates it. Do you think somebody in the film should say something about that? I mean, the film does the casting and then doesn't have anyone in the film acknowledge it, which I, that's kind of a letdown for me. It is notable. There is also, uh, we can, this is not a spoiler because I won't say who, but there is a gay subtext between two or more characters here and it is kept completely sub and uh, and it's more homosocial than homoerotic but it's there and it was it's been so long since I as a gay dude can sit in the audience and go I'm going to project onto that yeah. <laughs> what I want to and this film is not dissuading me from doing that that is a, a very old fashioned notion so but in the meantime you've got these laconic machismo hard manly men been through a lot that felt retro that felt like oh somebody should hug these guys because they, they're just so hard and manly and macho <laughs> it's, it seems like and this is where I'm going to hit my superhero thing again we went from singing cowboys in the 30s very whimsical to this Eastwood era of hard and similarly we went to simple do-gooder superheroes to the grim gritty sure. it feels like it's we're following the same arc hopefully we'll get uh, out of this valley of testosterone in a bit mm-hmm. yeah and, and I don't want each of the like I don't want to know each of their origin you know tell right. me the origins of one or two but mm-hmm. let the rest of them be kind of opaque I didn't really like the degree of motive that is ascribed to Denzel's character right. in this movie you know I, I like because I trust him as an actor like you you know you look at his face and you know that he has this rich history one of the things that I think is so great about Charlize Theron's performance in Mad Max Fury Road is she does not right. get a monologue saying this is why I'm doing it you right, know right. and we never ask why she's doing it because that is in the performance and Denzel is, you know, has that kind of presence. You know, I, I, I don't need a monologue from him saying, here are my motivations. All right. Well, we would love to hear your thoughts at home about The Magnificent Seven. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH or on Twitter at PCHH. After the break, we will discuss a new TV comedy called Fleabag. So come right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from USA Network's new series, Falling Water, which explores the questions, what if someone could walk out of their dream and into yours? What if they could use your dreams against you without you ever knowing? On October 13th, producers of The Walking Dead and Homeland present Falling Water, a new original drama where the battle for your dreams is real and happens while you sleep, because those who can control dreams can control the world. Falling Water, a new original series. Thursday, October 13th at 10, 9 central, only on USA Network. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. Fleabag is a new BBC Three comedy available in the U.S. via Amazon Prime that is written by and starring Phoebe Waller-Bridge as an unnamed single Londoner who is getting by in the aftermath of a personal tragedy. Now that sounds very dark and dramatic, but this show also has tons of jokes, some very raunchy sex scenes, and Glenn Weldon, so as not to bury the lead, you have told me is your favorite TV show of 2016, am I right? It very is. Tell me why. Okay. It is laceratingly <laughs> funny. It is fiercely intelligent. The gimmick of it, such as it is, is that she makes all these asides to the camera. That is understandable once you realize that this comes from a one-woman show that Phoebe Waller-Bridge performed and wrote at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. The thing 
thing is, that kind of aside is invisible on stage. It's mm-hmm. it's part of the deal. On television, in movies, it can be deadly because yeah. it can seem too cutesy. It can be just overwhelming. It can deflate the tension. It can uh, just get old. And it never does. She is so good at it. She is so good with just a simple expression, a glance at the camera, or a little bit of a monologue. It's got a very light touch, and this show knows exactly what it is from the first minute. It is six episodes long. Each episode is like 22 minutes, and it knows exactly where it's going to end. And Mm -hmm. when it ends, it has grown richer, deeper. You have gotten to know this character in a way that you don't, and the pilot does not necessarily tell you where this thing is going. It hints at it. It hints at it. And I bet if you don't like caustic people being caustic, you might be turned off by that pilot. But I implore you to stay with it because with each episode, we learn more, we get deeper, it gets funnier, there are more jokes. And the relationships uh, between these characters just comes alive. And Olivia Coleman is, is in this, playing her stepmother, and, you you know, can say evil stepmother. Uh, well, uh, she has a different word for it. Uh, but uh, <laughs> any scene in the show is great. Those scenes are just A++++. I want to live in those scenes because she is so good. And uh, so, yeah. So, anyway, that's a rave. But uh, I, I love this. Nice. All right. Chris Klemek, what do you think? Yeah, I surprisingly really liked it, too, once I got past the pilot. You know, okay. I, I'm... Uh, like, I, I'm generally not a fan of Larry David derivatives. Uh, like, Louis, I understand why people people adore it, but it's it's not really my speed. Uh, and also, I, I ran um, the City Papers Capital Fringe blog for five years, inheriting that job from Trey Graham. And let me tell you, like, solo shows about your sexual misadventures are mm-hmm. a tried and true fringe genre. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you will see 40 of those at every, every festival. So I had uh, a little bit of trepidation knowing where this came from. But that element shrinks after the pilot as we get more into her relationship with her sister, her relationship with her her friend who has recently died. This, you know, becomes a sort of a cycle about her her mourning her her best friend. With with a lot of scenes in flashback. Yeah. And and actually just the I mean maybe I just wasn't watching the pilot as attentively as as the others, but I, I felt like the the grammar delineating, you know, what's a flashback becomes more apparent in the in the later episodes. And I I, I can't pinpoint a you know particular technique that, mm-hmm. that made that easier for me to to digest. I have not seen the thing of of switching between asides and going back into the scene with uh, another player before. You know, and I I mean, I haven't watched House of Cards in several years, but my memory of that is Kevin Spacey is delivering soliloquies, but there isn't another person in the scene. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't go immediately back to talking he's, to someone yeah, he's else. Yeah, not, he's not turning his head yeah, slightly, no. speaking to the camera, and it's clear that the person he's with yeah. does not hear him. I mean, I, you know, I did find myself kind of wondering, like, how they, like, technically, you know, is there a dot that she's going to go look at and then come back <laughs> to the, you know, and the other actor doesn't react to the fact that she's talking to the camera for a second but that, you know, it didn't take me out of it, wondering how, uh, just like the level of proficiency that that requires. So yeah, I, I really loved it too. Wonderful. Tanya, how about you? Oh, I love this too. <laughs> <laughs> three for three. Yep. So I had not heard about it before. Did a quick look and I was like, oh, this is my kind of thing because I like a British show. I will say that the first few minutes of the <laughs> made me clutch pearls a bit because I was like, oh my. Yeah. <laughs> This is another do not watch on a plane, do not watch no, in the brain. No, right. no, no. I was like, ooh. But this character is who I think Lena Dunham wishes she was in Girls. Like, mm. I wishes she could, I think she hoped that she could make her character as interesting as the character in Fleabag, who to me has this richer sort of backstory mm-hmm. because you find out about her parents and her stepmom. You find out about her sister and her sister's marriage. But, you know, you get this, all of this in these 22-minute segments. 
but just little nuggets are being dropped about the friend who who passed away. But you also see right off too that they had a really close and loving relationship. So as the series progresses and you get to that last episode, it was a little bit of a oh stealthily moving. <laughs> yes. Oh, absolutely. And in some cases just straight up moving. Yeah. I think you know loss hangs over this story very very heavily and and really gives you a sense of how much this person who projects as a misanthrope in in many ways still requires a support network that she has an increasingly tenuous or even non-existent hold on and you know the show is kind of the the process of her of her coming to terms with that i mean a, a real analog to this show for me was You're the Worst. Yeah. Another show with a misanthropic British person <laughs> in it. And another show in which bad behavior is is the norm and you, you have to make a decision somewhere along the way of like, do I root for this person or not based on her behavior? And they do a, a wonderful job, I think, fleshing her out and making you feel for her and what has been what has been lost from her life and what she is continuing to to try to find. In in many ways, like her behavior on the show isn't necessarily so much just about misanthropy as like impulse control. Mm-hmm. That this person is all id. And, and really only is able to speak through and to her own id and her own just desire to make kind of impulsive decisions in the moment. And as the show unfolds, you get more and more of a feel for, for the repercussions of that, the consequences of yes. that. And in ways that as funny as this show is, are very, very moving. I also loved this show. And I think there are so many terrific supporting players you've already the most perfectly cast show that i've seen recently really really well cast show the sister uh sean clifford as her uh uptight sister who is you know dealing with career pressures and a very troubled marriage uh she is so pinchy and and effective but yet like you think she's going to be one thing, but they still give her layers of her own misanthropy. She's not simply sitting there as like a successful counterpart to the lead who looks down her nose at her sister. They, they, they add layers to her character. I, I think, yes, it is, it is a wonderfully cast show, but I, I was floored by how much I loved Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Yeah. She is not merely the the star of someone else's vision. This is her vision. And she has these wonderfully expressive eyes. You completely read her and it's so charming. And I think it's part of what makes her such a likable character, no matter how poorly she behaves. Yeah, this this made me feel a lot like I felt towards Sharon Horgan in Catastrophe. It's like, I need to find out everything this person has done. I need to follow that. Like, she has done a series called Crashing, which I think she wrote and directed before this, Hmm. that I'm going to seek out. The degree of control, narrative control, the show expresses. Because, again, six episodes. It knows exactly what it's doing. Mm -hmm. Importantly, the way the asides are used changes, deepens. And there are things that those asides are not telling us. There are things that she is not telling us. And there are times when she doesn't turn to us, even though we're waiting for her to turn to us, because something is happening in the story that can't be diffused in a way that an aside normally would. That is just so smart. And it's, again, the completeness of it is one of the things that I, I really love about it. I don't necessarily need another season. This, as a complete little perfect package, is all I need 
as much as I love these characters and I love these these actors, I think it's perfect the way it is. So we hope you take our recommendation if you haven't already seen it and check out Fleabag. And then we hope you come to Facebook and tell us what you think. Go to Facebook.com slash PCHH. And when we return, it'll be time for our favorite segment of this and every week, What is Making Us Happy This Week? So stick around. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the premiere of NBC's incredible new drama, Timeless, which asks, what if you could go back in time and change the past? Would it put the future in danger? Don't miss the premiere of Timeless after The Voice, Monday on NBC. Welcome back. It is time once again for our favorite segment, What is Making Us Happy This Week? Glenn Weldon. What is making you happy this week, buddy? Uh, because of weird uh, scheduling things, it feels like I haven't given uh, uh, what's making me happy in a while. So this is a whistle-stop tour. First one is the film The Nice Guys, which uh, Christopher oh, has yeah. recommended, uh, uh, starring Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling. It is hilariously funny. It is just so stylish and wonderful. The second, the film that took the second place in the box office this weekend was Storks, uh, oh, yeah. which is actually really good. I mean, it's it's all built around the animated performance, literally the animated performance. Andy Samberg uh, is so good in it, and the way they animate his performance is funny and fast. I also liked that they went with a female lead, Katie Crown, who is not necessarily well-known outside voiceover circles, and she is just doing great. It's got an overcomplicated plot, but it's go and see it for the performances. It's it's really funny. Yes. Children of the New World is a book of short stories by Alexander Weinstein, which I've recommended on the Facebook Live a few times, but I just want to say it's out now, and it's so good. It is so thoughtful about what technology is doing to us, but it's not moralistic or uh, scolding about that. It just is kind of plaintive and funny. That's Children of the New World by Alexander Weinstein. Uh, She Came From Beyond is a novel by Nadine Darling. Uh, It's coming out uh, in October. It's a comic novel with a lot of funny dialogue. It's very dry and witty. It's got wonderful prose. It's about a woman who works at a kind of Mystery Science Theater 3000 show in a little town in Oregon and how she gets involved with a married man. It has notes of Laurie Moore to it. I recommend it highly. And then finally, uh, Avengers Academy is a game for your phone uh, or or tablet where you can recruit various uh, members of the Avengers and then dress them up in little outfits and then build (laughs) a campus and uh, make them do little tasks as you wait to uh, launch an attack against Hydra. And it's kind of like the Simpsons game tapped out where you just kind of tap, tap, tap. Man, I love it. Avengers Academy. Thank you, Glenn Weldon. That is a thorough, thorough list. (laughs) (laughs) Tanya Ballard, what is making you happy this week? Well, first of all, Luke Cage on Mm -hmm. Netflix. Oh, yes. Yes. You know, for years and years and years, I was waiting for Black Panther to hit the screen. Mm -hmm. I'm still waiting. But the feature film is not here yet. That said, I was happy with him in Civil War. They did a great job introducing him. It was all I could dream of and more. Hey, this dude playing Luke Cage. Uh I don't really care what he does in this (laughs) season. (laughs) He just tries. He'll be good because I watched him in Jessica Jones. But good acting and then you know good visual is you can't uh-huh. lose September 30th my Netflix and then uh, I need to start my I'm judging you the book by Lovey Ajayi and if you don't read Lovey you should you should read her blog it's the most entertaining thing I laugh all the time so I have great great hopes for a lot of gut laughs when I read this book so that's what I'm looking forward to this week and we will throw a link up to her blog so people can read more. Thank you so much, Tanya Ballard. Chris Klimek, what is making you happy this week? Princess. This is Maya Rudolph and her friend Gretchen Liebram, a singer-songwriter. They were buddies from UC Santa Cruz, and they have a Prince cover band that's been playing, I think, mostly around L.A. for about five years. But uh, I, I think it's just the tragic uh, passing of Prince that, that has occasioned their, their tour now. So they were at the 930 Club 
last night. This is a, a handful of, of dates, but doing like sort of dirty mind through purple rain oh, hair prints. Nice. So not a you know it's it's the stuff you know. It's not a lot of not a lot of deep cuts, but they were great. I wish they had introduced the band, you know, because we have two kind of famous people singing and then five really great players backing mm-hmm. them up. But that that was my only complaint. Um, if you get a chance to see Princess, you should do that. Nice. Thank you, Chris Klimek. Now, before I talk about what's making me happy this week, I do want to send a reminder out to all of you nice people, especially you nice people in Portland, Oregon, that we are about to embark on a West Coast tour. It is taking us through Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles, they've sold out. Portland has not yet sold out. If you are in Portland or know somebody in Portland, please uh, buy tickets. Come see us. We will put on a great show. Audie Cornish from All Things Considered. Who is fantastic? Will be sitting in as our fourth chair. We will have a tremendous amount of fun. It is October nineteenth at Revolution Hall in Portland. Uh, for ticket information, go to nprpresents.org. We will also be at the Now Hear This Podcast Festival in Anaheim, California, on October 29th. With our fourth chair is Guy Branham from mm-hmm. uh, from Pop Rocket. He's a great stand-up. He's incredibly funny. He's born to be on our show. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very very excited about that one. That is a weekend long festival we are playing on October 29th uh, go to nowhearthisfest.com for ticket information and to see what else is at the festival as for what is making me happy this week I talk all the time about how it is hard to keep up with all the incredibly innovative great new TV and I thought I would sit down on a bored afternoon and watch non-innovative TV and caught the pilot for Designated Survivor uh-huh. okay. the, the, the new ABC drama very very high touted. It's not innovative? Oh, man. It's not particularly... I will say, it's a clever plot. Like a clever story idea. Kiefer Sutherland is the kind of uh, shrimpy housing and urban development secretary <laughs> in, a, in a presidential administration. He's kind of on the outs with the administration. But he is set aside to be the cabinet official who does not attend the State of the Union address, which of course has the Supreme Court and all of Congress and the president and the vice president. And we should revisit this. This is a bad system. (laughs) This show demonstrates that it might be a bad system. Now it demonstrates this through the most incredibly unrealistic string of events uh, imaginable up to and including poor Kiefer Sutherland realizing that the Capitol has been blown up by looking out the window and like on a balcony. Like he probably we wouldn't be on a balcony in that situation. <laughs> um, it is a silly show, but it is an incredibly competent show, and it's kind of fun. Uh, designated Survivor on ABC. That brings us to the end of Pop Culture Happy Hour. You can follow all of us on Twitter. You can follow the show at PCHH. You can follow me at I Dislike Steven. You can follow Glenn Weldon at GH Weldon. You can follow Tanya Ballard at T Double B. That's T D O U B L E B. And you can follow Chris Klimek at CT Klimek. That's K-L-I-M-E-K. You can follow our producer, Jessica Reedy, at Jessica underscore Reedy, and you can follow our producer emeritus and music director, Mike Katzif, at Mike Katzif, that's K-A-T-Z-I-F. Mike's band, Hello Come In, provides our in and out music, which you are tapping your foot to now. So thanks to all of you for being here. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you for listening, and we will see you right back here next week. Here in the U.S., Tuesday, October 4th, is the only vice presidential debate. And the next morning, the NPR Politics Podcast is inviting you to skip the cable news hangover and get caught up with them. They'll have new podcast episodes the morning after every debate, so you will know what happened and what it means by the time you get to work or class or yoga. Whatever your morning routine, make the NPR Politics Podcast a part of it. 
the morning of October 5th after the vice presidential debate. Subscribe or listen on the NPR One app.